values. Mark chapter 14. If you're brand new here, let's say welcome. I'm so glad that you are here, whether you are new to town, new to Fellowship Bible Church, whether you're a Christian, whether you're not a Christian. I'm so glad that you are here. Before we actually look into this text, I want to say a couple of things. Last Sunday night, we had what's called a concert of prayer. And a good number of us gathered together and we prayed about an hour. And I've got to tell you, my soul was so stirred by that. And I'm so grateful to be a part of a praying church that was actually um, designed and led by one of the five focus teams that we have during this transition that we are in. It's the focus team of prayer. Uh, If you're a part of that focus team of prayer, if you're here, would you stand up for just a moment and let us say thank you? If you're a part of that team, just stand up. Yeah, thank you so much. Amen. Here's the second thing. Last week, the kids' ministry leaders and the youth ministry leaders gathered for training in what to do if there is an allegation of abuse in our children. Now, we gathered for this training not because there has been an allegation at all, but we're a church that takes very seriously the care and protection of our children. That's, um, that's of utmost importance to us. And it's a real sense of ease to know that we have policies in place, like two adults in every room where there are kids and multiple 20-some-odd cameras that are operating, um, a safety team that is a part over there in the kids' ministry, because we are committed as a church to the safety and protection of our children. We think it's a gospel issue, keeping our children safe so they can Feel, hear, and see the love of Jesus as expressed. And I say all of that, well, let me say one more statistic that we heard. One in three girls is sexually abused by the age of 18 in our country. Let that sink in. One in three girls. One in seven boys is sexually abused in our country before they hit 18. So we not only have policies like two adults in every room and cameras and on and on, um, We have a plan in place if there is a suspicion of anything like that happening. I just want you to know that, and we need your help. I need some of you to volunteer to share and to show the love of Jesus to our children. If you're willing to volunteer to serve in the name of Christ, discipling some of our kids right outside afterwards, Kim, our and our children's director is going to be there. You'll get a background check, a national background check, so you will be screened. You won't have to pay for it. We'll take care of that. You will be trained, and you won't be sentenced to a life imprisonment in the kids' ministry. All right? So I'm asking you to do this. I'm asking you to agree to serve in one of the two hours on Sunday morning or in the afternoon with with the one. I'm asking you to serve one time a month for the next four months, try it on for size. One time a month, you'll be trained, you'll be screened, you will not be alone in a room full of kids. There will be other adults there working with you, but quite frankly, we need your help. Deal? Deal? (laughs) So let me get into this uh, message like this. Have you ever found it really difficult to be a Christian? I have. 
lot of people have. Sometimes the reason, and there are many reasons, sometimes the reason is theological. How do you get your mind around the Trinity? One God, three persons, the Father is God, the Son is God, the, children, the, 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 the Holy Spirit is God. Thinking about kids and the, the divots and what you said. They're, all three are God, but there's one God. And the Father's not the Son, and the Son's not the Spirit, and the Spirit's not the Father. How do you get your mind around that? Or how do you get your mind around Jesus, not half God, half human, fully human, fully God? So as God, he works miracles, does what only God can do, and he gets weak, he gets lonely, he has to eat, he has to sleep. He's born, but God's always existed. He dies, and God is life itself. How do you get your mind around Jesus, fully God and fully human? Or how do you reconcile predestination and human responsibility? Because the Bible teaches both. Augustine years ago said, if you were asked what God was doing before he created time, the best answer is he was creating the fires of hell for people who ask questions like that. Or the problem of evil. God is all-powerful. He can do whatever he wants. God is all-good, all-loving. So how do you explain what little children suffer? This is a huge problem for people. How do you explain that a tornado takes out an entire town, including a church full of people, God's people? How do you explain that? Is God not able to do anything? No, he's all-powerful. Does God not care? No, he's all-good. Lots of questions like this. And I think sometimes the hardest questions have to do with prayer. When you struggle, what do you do? You pray. And you get people to pray. And I've heard so many people say, I felt your prayers. Your prayers made the world to me. Your prayers got me through. But sometimes prayer makes it worse. It makes it more difficult to understand. Brad Arts was a friend of mine. Bible teacher, a deacon, really faithful husband, great witness at his job working in the cotton industry in Memphis, had two little girls, came down with pancreatic cancer. And we prayed as a church, and some of us fasted and prayed, and we prayed like crazy, and people all over the world prayed, and we gathered together and anointed him with oil in faith, and Brad died. And lots of people were asking, why? His healing would have glorified God. His healing would have been a, an evangelistic witness to so many people. And, and it shook a lot of people's faith. How do you pray when nothing happens? Well, that takes us to Mark, because Jesus is going to teach us that. Mark chapter 14, beginning with verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John. So he wants the rest of the disciples, guard the garden. I've got business to do. I've got, I'm, I want to be praying, so make sure I'm not disturbed. But he takes the inner three, Peter and James and John, because he's human. And we want companionship. We, we don't want to face crisis alone. You're in the hospital. You appreciate it when people are there with you during a, a dark hour. And he knows what's going to happen. 
and he wants to prepare them for that. So he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further just to be alone with his father, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what, will, what you will. And then the scene shifts from Jesus to the disciples. He's praying. They're sleeping. And he came and found them sleeping, which you should never do during a sermon. He said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. And they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping? That's the question for today. Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So Jesus is agonizing in prayer, and the disciples have drifted off, and they're asleep. And I see a couple of things happening in this story. Number one, Jesus teaches us how to pray and number two, Jesus challenges us to wake up. You know what Gethsemane means? Olive press. Gethsemane was a kind of an orchard or a, a garden, and there were olive trees. In fact, there are olive trees today there that are 2,000 years old. Perhaps they were there when Jesus was there. They actually saw what happens. And there was an olive press there where ripe olives were put between two stones, and they were crushed so that virgin olive oil would come out. And maybe you've been to a, a state fair and seen apple cider being made. You know, they put all these apples on a conveyor belt. It runs through a, a, a press, and those apples are smashed and crushed, and the seeds are, and the pulp is taken out, and you get juice coming out the other side. That's what happens with an olive press. And that olive oil is used to light the candles in the temple. It's used to light people's homes in those days. It was used to put on your skin because in that arid climate, your skin would dry out and they would refresh themselves with olive oil. It also had medicinal qualities, so they would use it uh, for aches and pains. Gethsemane is where olives were crushed. It's where Jesus was crushed. And if you live long enough, you'll spend some time in Gethsemane where you will feel crushed. Some of you have had to walk with God through a divorce you did not want, and you asked God to change things, and he did not, and he's just had to carry you through. You've been in Gethsemane. Some of you have had children who have broken your heart. They've made poor decisions. They're far from where they need to be, and you know what it is to go night after night, and you can't sleep, and you can't eat. You're in Gethsemane. Some of you have buried loved ones after long illnesses. Nobody gets out of life without spending time in Gethsemane, because Gethsemane is where you make the most agonizing decisions of your life. Gethsemane is where you go when you have to do what you don't want to do. 
Gethsemane is where you go when there's no place else to go but God. Gethsemane is the place where you either say yes or no to God. And Gethsemane is the place where you get drowsy and just go to sleep. Gethsemane is where Jesus went on the night of his betrayal, where he fights the greatest battle of his life, where he's crushed by this incredible pressure and stress, where he teaches us how to pray when we're being crushed. And for Jesus, as Josh was telling us, the crushing didn't actually begin there in the Garden of Gethsemane. It began earlier when he's with the disciples having the Last Supper, and he so looked forward to it. He told them, I, I look forward to this, but then things went south. Judas walks out to betray him. The disciples begin arguing about who's the greatest and who can replace Jesus when he's gone. Peter's boasting he'll stay loyal to death. Jesus says, you're going to be sifted, and you're going to deny me three times this very night. And finally, Jesus has enough and walks out, and the disciples follow him, and they cross this little ravine called the Kidron Valley. Really, it's just kind of a big ditch. They walk up this little hill called the Mount of Olives, and he turns to the men who have disappointed him so much, and he loves so much. He says, yes, stay here. Peter, James, and John, you come with me. And it's late at night. And they've had a long week, and they, are, they have full bellies, and it's dark. And they kind of arrange themselves on the ground. They lean against the tree trunks, and one by one, their heads begin to nod. And they're asleep, and Jesus is crushed. In fact, if you look at verse 33, it says he was distressed and troubled. That word distressed means terrified, horror-stricken. Troubled means loathing agony. In verse 34, he says, my soul and your soul is your mind, your will, and your emotions. That kind of comprises your soul. My soul, my mind, my emotions, my will is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. It's like he's drowning in emotional pain. It's killing him. You know, sometimes we see a picture of Jesus the Garden of Gethsemane, and his hair's permed, and, and he's got white clothes on. He's got this glow about him. There's a light coming down from heaven, and he's, he's looking up. Nothing could be further from the truth. 35 says he falls to the ground. He stumbles. You just see him with his fingers digging into the dirt, and his face is down in the ground, and darkness is closing in. And we've never seen Jesus like this. We've never seen him like this. Every time we see Jesus, he is fearless. He's in control. He knows what to do. Tempted in the wilderness for four, 40 days before he begins his ministry, he's going one-on-one -on -one with the devil. He is fearless. He will not back down. His own hometown people try to kill him. He just walks away. Face, he faces demons. He says, be quiet. He faces this raging storm on the water, and the disciples are panicking, and Jesus just stands up and says, be quiet. Everything calms down. Multitude to be fed, 20,000 people to be fed, no problem. Where's the kid with the sack lunch? Where is he? He always knew what to do. He's always fearless. His preaching was fearless. He 
scorches the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders, and they grind their teeth at him. He's fearless. But now, Gethsemane, it's all changed. He is frightened, almost sick. And when Luke tells the story, he says there is such stress that his, he's sweating blood. Doctors call this hemotidrosis. It's when the little capillaries burst and go through your, the pores of your skin. It's very rare, mixed with your sweat. In fact, some commentators believe he is so drained physically and emotionally and spiritually, he's dying right there. So Luke tells us an angel comes and strengthens him. Sometimes God does that for us. When we have no strength and we call out, there have been times when I have been so drained, so exhausted, just in, in despair, and I cry out and say, God, I just can't get through this. I'm way in over my head. Please help me. And I've never seen an angel, but I know what it's like, like many of you. I know what it's like in the middle of prayer to feel an energy, to feel a hope, to get encouragement and insight. Here's the question. Why is Jesus facing death like this? Because so many Christians, all for the last 2,000 years, so many Christians have faced death singing and praising God, the martyrs being flames going up all around them, and they're singing to the Lord. Socrates drinks hemlock, a poison, lays back, and he's cracking jokes with his buddies. Not Jesus. He's unlike anybody else at this moment. What's going on? Well, it all has to do with what he calls the cup. He prayed, Lord, take this cup from me. What is this cup? Well, it's a well-known symbol in the Old Testament. Let me read a couple of verses from the Older Testament. Isaiah 51, 17. Wake yourself up. Wake yourself up. Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. Or Jeremiah 25, 15. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I, I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I'm sending among them. In the Old Testament, the cup is the symbol of the punishment of God on his enemies. It's a symbol of judgment. It's his righteous anger against sin. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. The cup is what happened on the cross, where he is forsaken by the Father. And three different times Jesus prayed, take this cup from me. Can't you find another way? You can do anything, Father. I don't want to do this. Please take this cup away. Find another way to save my people without making me bear the sins of the world, without abandoning me. It will destroy me if you're torn from me. If I drink this cup, hell is in this cup. Eternal hell is in this cup. You won't look at me. You'll loathe me. I'll hate myself. Call it off. You can do anything. 
maybe he's thinking of Abraham when he's offering Isaac, kind of as a sacrifice, and he picks up the knife to kill Isaac, and the killing is averted. Maybe he's thinking, Father, you did that once before. Please do it again for me. And then he says, but nevertheless, if this is what you want, I'm willing to be crushed if there's no other way for people to be forgiven. And in his prayer, Jesus teaches us a couple of things about how to pray. Number one, don't be afraid to ask. All throughout his ministry, Jesus told people, ask. Ask the Father. Keep asking. Keep seeking. Keep knocking. Philippians 4, ask whatever you wish. Let your request be made known to God. In fact, the Bible says there are two mistakes we make in prayer. One is we just don't ask. And the second is we ask selfishly. We, we don't have because we don't ask. and we don't, When we ask, we don't have because it's a, it's a selfish request. But Jesus said, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give you good things if you ask? So ask Him. Jesus says, Father, you can do anything. You know, with God, the question is not can He, it's always will He. So ask whatever you wish, but then ask for God's will to be done. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. And friends, sometimes that's just about the hardest thing you can do. The surrender to God's will. It is a battle. It took Jesus three different times to fight the battle to say, not what I want, what you want. How do you do that? How do you pray and surrender to God's will when your heart is breaking or you're feeling crushed? How do you do that? How did Jesus do it? Well, he knew three things. He knew to whom he was praying. He knew his suffering had a purpose. And he knew the end of the story. He knew to whom he was praying. He calls him Abba, which is an Aramaic word for of intimacy, a, uh, just a normal Aramaic word for father, but it has this, has this sense of devotion, of closeness, of of love, Daddy, and it makes all the difference in the world if you know to whom you're praying that He is a good, good Father. I heard a sermon by Kevin DeYoung, pastor, and he said, if someone asks you to drink a spoonful of green liquid, it makes all the difference if you know who's asking. If it's your Father who loves you and you trust Him and this is medicine to make you better, or if it's a stranger who's put antifreeze in that spoon. Makes all the difference in the world. Makes all the difference to know it's your father that you're submitting to who loves you and wants your best, will never abandon you. Jesus knew his Abba. And he knew that his suffering had a purpose. In this very gospel of Mark, he says, I didn't come to be served, Mark 10, 45. I didn't come to be served. I came to serve and give my life a ransom for many. Jesus knew because of his death, those of us who believe in him will never, ever face the terrible, righteous judgment of God because Jesus drank that cup dry. There's nothing left. Friends, our sins have not only been canceled, they've been liquidated. They've been obliterated. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. But what makes suffering worse is when it just seems senseless. You ever find, find yourself just saying, 
Why, God? Why? Well, what's the purpose? I, I don't see it. Winston Churchill missed or he was not elected uh, in the 1930s in England, and he was in the dumps. His wife came to him, Clemmie came, and she said, Winston, maybe there's a blessing in this. And Winston Churchill said, if there is, it is hidden. I don't see it. And maybe the most difficult fight any of us ever fight to believe God has a purpose when you cannot see it. Job's wife comes to him and says, there's no purpose in your suffering. Just curse God and die. And Job turns around and says, if he slay me, I'll still trust him. That's the choice. You either curse God or you trust God. Third, he knew the end of the story. Because Hebrew 2 says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He knew what was coming. He knew there was a happy ending. And so do we, don't we? I don't think we talk about heaven enough. I don't think we talk about the resurrection enough. When everything wrong is going to be made right. I told you last week I watched our grandson. Our grandson is a, a senior. He's quarterback of the football team. and We watched their game last week. We were there in, in, in Arkansas. They, were behind, they won in the last eight seconds. They were behind the first quarter, the second quarter, the third quarter, and the fourth quarter. It's really fun to go back and watch that game now. Because at halftime, hey, Ruthie, pass the popcorn. This is great because we know what's going to happen, right? If you knew that at age 70, you would be as strong and healthy as an, an Olympic athlete. Truth is, at age 70, everything hurts. But <laughs> if you knew that... And you knew you would be fabulously wealthy. And you knew that everybody would love you. And every dream you ever had would come true. And your life would be full of joy. If you knew that was going to happen at age 70, you could endure whatever it took to get to age 70. If you just know the end of the story. Question, did Jesus get his prayer answered? What do you think? No and yes. Father, take this cup away. Was that answered? No. Not my will, but yours be done. Was that prayer answered? Yeah, that's the prayer God always answers. Always. And Jesus not only teaches us how to pray, he challenges us to watch and wait. Because verse 37 says, after praying, he came and found them sleeping. You would think they would stay awake. He shakes them awake, and he says to Peter, Simon? And when Jesus calls Peter Simon, that's not a compliment. I mean, that was his old name before he met Jesus. But then he meets Jesus. Jesus changes his name because he's a new man. He has a new purpose. He has new priorities. Everything has changed. But Peter is acting like the old Simon. Question, can a believer revert back and start acting like he's not a believer? Sure he can. Sure, she can. Peter's a prime example of that. And I need to just stop for a moment, step aside, and, and say a word about sleep, a biblical theology of sleep. Sleep is a gift from God. Most of us don't get enough sleep. Most of us, many of us have problems getting to sleep. But sleep is a gift. It, it's necessary for our health, right? They, they, they tell us that. 
Sleep is, according to the Bible, sleep's an opportunity to trust God because He's not sleeping while you are. He's going to take care of things. It's an operation of, it's an opportunity for humility. I don't have to hold the weight of the world up on me like Atlas, you know, holding the weight of the world. You know, sleep an opportunity, it's an opportunity just to put myself in the hands of God, go to sleep. Sleep is preparation for dying. Close your eyes. Next resurrection, next day. So you're in the presence of Jesus. So sleep's a good thing. But there and, and Christians often call death sleep because there's a resurrection coming. But sleep also has another meaning in Scripture. It's a metaphor for being out of it. Just being unresponsive to the things of God. Just checking out. Spiritually lethargic. Just drowsy. Not alert, complacent, spiritually sluggish. Just sleepwalking. Unaware of danger. Jesus says, are you asleep? And that's Peter. He's just clueless to what's going on. And chances are, some of you are too. You're asleep at the wheel. You just need to be awakened. You need a wake-up call. And when that happens, that's called revival, both individually and corporately. When we, just, when we wake up out of this sleep, this drowsiness, this lethar- lethargy, this this uh, just complacency. Jesus says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he's already told him, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows twice. And you would think that uh, Peter has the alarm bells going off in his mind. Jesus said, you said you would die for me. You can't even stay awake an hour. All, Peter, you're all talk, big talk, over-promise, under-deliver. Satan's coming after you. So keep watching, keep praying. You will cave to temptation if you don't watch and pray. Satan wants to lure you to compromise your faith, your commitment to Christ. There's a temptation to shift your loyalty when that crisis comes. And the crisis did come because a little teenage girl looks up at him, at Peter, and says, hey, I think you're one of the followers too. And he says, no, and denies Christ. Do you know why Peter denied Christ? Some people say it's because Jesus healed his mother-in-law. I don't think that's the case at all. (laughs) This is not a time for humor. Denies Christ because he's not watching and praying. He's not asking God's strength. He can't do it alone. Neither can we. Our weakness should drive us to the Lord. And how tender Jesus is because he comes back to them and he says, The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Boy, isn't that you and me? Listen to how the message renders this. The message uh, paraphrase. Part of you is eager, ready for anything in God, but another part is as lazy as an old dog sleeping by the fire. (laughs) That's who we are. We're ready, and we're like an old dog. Lazy dog. We have this genuine desire to do God's will. We want to be disciplined. We want to be faithful. We want to please God. The Spirit's willing. Who in here wants to fail as a Christian? But the flesh is weak. We have these great intentions and all this conflict going on inside. And we just expect Jesus to give up on us. He doesn't. He comes back once. He comes twice. He comes a third time. 
went away, verse 39, prayed, saying the same words. I, I just thought this last week, if Jesus, the Son of God, needed to pray and wrestle through this and humble himself for an hour, how much more do I, Peter and James and John, myself, need to wrestle things through? Because we give up so easy. We say, well, prayer's not answered immediately. Maybe God doesn't want to do this. No, no. Verse 40, and it doesn't get any better. Again, he came and found them sleeping. <laughs> You'd think they'd wake up and smell the coffee. Their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. You know why they couldn't stay awake? I know they were tired. I know they were exhausted, but this is a crisis. And in a crisis, people do heroic, thing, heroic things. In a crisis, you do what you norm normally would not do. When our little granddaughter died, Eloise, nine years old. That night, Ruthie and I rushed from Memphis to Arkansas. We didn't sleep that night. I laid down on the floor where my son-in-law was in a fetal position. Put my arms around him. And we prayed all night long for Eloise. In a crisis, you do what you normally would not do. You know why they slept? They did not know how needy they were. They did not recognize their weakness. They thought they, thought they could live the Christian life on autopilot. They had no idea how weak they were. It's not enough to hear the words of Jesus because they, they did that. It's not enough to be close to Jesus because no one was closer that night than they were. It's not enough for your spirit to be willing. They just didn't recognize how weak they were how much they needed him for the next five minutes of life. And how are we just like them? So verse 41, he came a third time, said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Same question. Then he says, it's enough. You know, you read the commentaries, and the questions you want to ask, they never address. They'll go on and on, pages and pages about obvious stuff. So I wonder, what does it mean when Jesus said it's enough? Here's my best guess. I think, I think he's saying, enough of this. Enough of praying and watching. I'm giving you three opportunities to watch and pray. Peter, you're going to wish you had watched and, uh, watched and prayed. You're going to deny me three times. So rise. They're still on the ground. <laughs> they still can't get rise. Let us be going. That's how out of it they were. Let's face it head on. And now, no more struggle. No more wrestling with God's will. He's worked it through. In fact, one commentator says the victory has been won in prayer. In his heart, there is perfect peace. He is resolved. He embraces the cross. He embraces the will of God. He knows this is why he came into the world. So I just want to end with this question. Are you still sleeping? Some of you have never been more awake in your life. You're in God's Word. You are praying. You are alert to what is happening around you and the culture and your life and your family. You are awake. And I say, praise God. But others of us, it's like a spell has been cast over us. We just want to lie down and sleep through simple things like reading a Bible and praying. So I end with the words of Ephesians 5.14. Awake, O oh sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you.
It's not what we want. Lord, shine on me. Help me to wake up. Rise from the dead, from the sleep. Let's pray together. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I've just described the prelude to what it took for him to forgive your sins going to the cross. And this would be a great morning to do that. You don't want to let this one slip by. Wake up. And if you've just kind of been drowsy <laughs> as a Christian, not sleepwalking, autopilot, would you pray and say, Dear God, help me to wake up. Help me to open my eyes. Help me to watch and pray so I don't cave to temptation. So, Lord, this time is yours. This service is yours. And we thank you for the Lord Jesus, your incredible patience, your incredible tenderness, and your incredible willingness to speak to us in straight words. In Christ's name, amen. Worship team, if you would, come on up to the stage. Awake, O sleeper. Rise from the dead. Christ will shine on you. Let's stand together and prepare to sing.